So we're studying this evening the section of Exodus 19 that runs from verse 7 down to the end of the chapter. The trauma of holiness. The way that we we relate to people, the kind of language that we use, uh, our attentiveness to what they're saying, uh, and so on, speaks volumes about the way that we relate to them and the way that we see ourselves in relation to them. Uh, The way that you relate to your boss at work, for example, uh, is or should be very different from the way that you relate to your mate at a kickabout on the all-weather pitch on a Friday night. Uh, they, uh, even although he may be a, a, a boss who's close uh, to his colleagues, his workmates, uh, there is a, a certain distance involved because of the, the rank, the difference in, in rank. And, and therefore, the kind of banter that goes on at, uh, on a football pitch is not the kind of conversation that's appropriate with your boss. And though we speak of the important move in our understanding of God uh, as our Father that Jesus has brought, uh, in fact, J.I. Packer says that all that is new, that the New Covenant brings, that the New Testament uh, communicates, is found in our relationship to God as Father. Nevertheless, the New Testament uh, remains clear that our God is a consuming fire. And that just as a loving son will rejoice in the closeness that he has to his father, yet, and even perhaps because of that, he will jealously guard his father's honour. There is an intimacy and a filial respect that is quite compatible and is quite compatible in our relationship to God. Now, things swing from one extreme to the other in the way that church uh, is done. And it may have been the case in the past in Scottish Presbyterianism that it could, be, it could have been described as uh, full of fear and, and joylessness. But how far that pendulum has swung in the other direction in our own day in terms of uh, a loose and slack informality that tends to Ignore the, the awesomeness and the holiness of God. I was listening to Sinclair Ferguson uh, on the trailer for uh, a series, a uh, video series called uh, Puritans. And speaking about the, the worship of the Puritans, he said, uh, that principle that was so obvious to the Puritans, how does God want to be worshipped? Would be like a cold shower in the middle of the night to many churches today. It just never crosses their minds. There are many passages in Scripture, uh, in both the Old Testament and the New, which remind us that we are to come before God with deep reverence. And Exodus 19 is one of those uh, supreme examples of this. And, and therefore, as we come to worship tonight, we, we come not in the, the kind of spirit, the kind of anticipation that you come with when you go to the cinema. You know, you're ready to slouch down deep into your seat and uh, wait to be entertained. That's the very uh, antithesis of what we're about uh, in worshiping of the worshiping of God. Uh, we, we don't come into church with a, 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 an inattentiveness, you know, eyes flitting hither and thither and what will 
interest and pick up our attention. Uh, we come focused on the, the, the reality of being in the presence of the living God and privileged to come in Jesus' name before him. And up and down the country, that kind of anticipation of holiness and readiness to worship in the way that God desires to be worshipped is increasingly uh, in the minority. People come for their needs to be met, uh, to consider whether the music was contemporary or traditional enough for their taste, to comment on the quality of the singing or the quality of the, the clothes that people were wearing in church. And these things are so far removed of what God desires in his worship. What is God like and how does God desire to be worshipped is the pressing question. And that's where this chapter is so important. Chapter 19 is a powerful preparation for the giving of the Ten Commandments, God's law. The people are at Sinai. They've reached the place where God had said they would worship him like they had never worshipped him before. They've come to the point where they are about to be galvanized into a nation, uh, a nation in covenant with God, given his law as the, uh, the revelation of his character, uh, as the instruction book as to how they can express their gratitude for his redeeming love. We're going to look at how uh, this traumatic holiness is communicated to Israel and hence to us. First of all, think with me about God's awesome approach. And secondly, God's hazardous holiness. And then the provision of God prefigured in Moses. God's awesome approach key to understanding all that's going on and, and, and why there is so much trauma involved here is that this is a, a covenant making with Israel. Now, when God based his relationship with Israel and covenant, and when God used the, the, the idea of covenant throughout the Bible as how he would relate to human beings, God was speaking into a, a human instrument in other words, there was something that was known in society that was familiar to them and God uses this to communicate uh, the way in which he will relate to people. We see the same in the New Testament with the, the idea of adoption. Adoption is a, a Roman concept. Uh, it's a societal concept and God speaks uh, new truth into it in terms of how he relates to us. And similarly with covenant, uh, there were treaties that were made between uh, suzerain kings, overlords, and their vassal states. For example, archaeologists have come across uh, treaties at the Hittites, an ancient group made with, with peoples that they had conquered. And nearly all of these old covenants have got the same kind of format. And what's really interesting is that you can, you can make a parallel between uh, these old types of covenant form and what you find in the Bible. So, uh, there's first of all a preamble or a formal introduction to the covenant. Then there's a prologue. And what the prologue does, it gives a historical narration of past events. Usually ending up with the climactic battle in which the, the, the nation that's now the subject nation was defeated. 
Then there is a, a spelling out of the terms of the relationship. There are various obligations, tributes that were due, military support that had to be supplied. And these obligations are then followed by blessings and curses. You know, woe betide you if you don't uh, fulfil the tribute and so on. And then two copies of the treaty are made, one for each nation, and the treaty is, is ratified in a covenant ceremony. Now, if you keep that at the back of your mind, you see that again and again and again. That is the format that we have in the, the Bible. And we have that in, uh, here in Exodus 19 through Exodus 20 and the following chapters. We have a covenant making, covenant ratification. And so there was the, the, the prologue in the verses that we studied last week where there's a a reminder of the, the historical events that have led up to this covenant making. And you remember last, year, last week we said that it's so important to bear in mind the order of these events. We're told that God acted on Israel's behalf. He defeated their enemies. Uh, he bore them in eagle's wings and he brought them to himself. In other words, God had redeemed Israel. God's saving acts are declared. And then... Uh, there is a call to obedience. Obey my covenant. And then there's the promise of blessing. And it's an irreversible order. Uh, so God first redeems. And then he tells us to obey. God doesn't say obey and then you'll be redeemed. Obey and you'll get out of Egypt. Just wouldn't happen that way. Uh, it's to a saved people. A people who have been delivered out of Egypt. At the expense of the shedding of blood. That God gives the commandments and says, this is how you're to obey me. This is how you relate to me. And if you will obey me in this way, then you will be for me a treasured possession. You will be for me a kingdom of priests. You will be to me a holy nation. That's always the order. Saving acts, obedience, promise of blessing. And the fact that this is a covenant-making uh, <coughs> enactment explains something a little unusual in verses 7 and 8. Moses is told to go down and tell the Israelites what God has said in the prologue and to come up with a response. That's straightforward enough. They all agree to do all that God will tell them. And then Moses goes up the mountain again to tell God. Why does Moses need to go up and tell the God who knows all things what the Israelites have agreed at the bottom of the mountain. Because this is covenant ritual, because he is the, the, the go-between, the intermediary, and there is a dramatization of this new relationship between God and the people. So Moses is getting plenty of exercise, even though God doesn't need to be informed. There's a ritual that's going on here. <clears throat> and what Moses is now told is that Israel is to get ready for God's awesome approach. God is not going to come immediately. There is going to be something of a build-up. He will come on the third day. And the people are not ready for him because he is coming as a great king. The king of the covenant. And they are to be prepared for the coming of the king. They must wash their clothes. And Moses must consecrate them in some way. We're not told how it is that Moses will consecrate them. Some of the scholars think there must have been some kind of sacrifice involved in this consecrating of the people. 
At least they, they learn one thing. No unclean person can come near to God. And they're to abstain from sexual relations. Calvin comments here, although there's nothing polluting or contaminating in the marriage bed, yet the Israelites were to be reminded that all earthly cares were as much as possible to be renounced and all carnal affections to be put away, that they might give their entire attention to the reading of the law. So there's this preparation of the people. It's cleansing and consecration. Then when God comes, he will come in the clouds. Again, it's a very regular biblical portrayal of the coming of the majesty of God. Psalm 97. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. God's glory has already been in the cloud that went before the people in their journeying out of Egypt. Isaiah speaks of the majesty of the judge who comes in the clouds. See, the name of the Lord comes from afar with burning anger and dense clouds of smoke. His lips are full of wrath and his tongue is consuming fire. And of course, at the transfiguration of Jesus, cloud envelops the mountain and God speaks out of the cloud. This cloud that is covering and shielding God is underlying his otherness. God is separated from us. Isaiah exclaimed, surely you are a God who hides himself, O God and Saviour of Israel. So it's a sign, God coming in the clouds is a sign that, that God is so high above us and is coming in majesty and is coming as the judge but it's also a sign that God is accommodating himself to us Uh, God is as it were raising a shield around himself for us because otherwise we would be consumed we would be burnt up in the glory of his presence we could not stand in his presence unprotected the cloud is a kind of protection for us in order that God might draw near I notice God says to Moses, he will come down to his people. That's a significant direction of movement. The people are are not going to uh, attain to God. Uh, The the pagan gods were considered to be um, dwellers on the tops of mountains. So in Mount Olympus in Greece, uh, you had the, the, the gods dwelling on the mountain. No, God has to come down to the mountain. And his arrival will be announced by the great trumpet blast. An awesome approach. And then God comes. And we have, secondly, the hazard, hazardous holiness of God. And it's fascinating that when God does come at last, there, there is a, a dynamic which is moving in two opposite directions. There's a a push-pull going on here. There's, on the one hand, the beckoning God. Uh, God calls uh, to us, and we want to go to God. There's a fascination. We're captivated by the presence of God. So when God first appeared to Moses, God appears to Moses in the burning bush, And 
Moses sees this site and it's intriguing because here's a bush and it's ablaze. But the, the wood in the bush is not becoming ash. It's not burning up. The bush is simply on fire and yet it's not consumed. And Moses is intrigued and begins to walk towards the bush. And indeed, God calls to Moses from the bush, Moses, Moses. But as soon as Moses draws near, what happens? God says, don't come any nearer. Because the place in which you're standing is holy ground. Take off your sandals. Stop. There's a come and there's a stop. Don't come any nearer. Pulling and pushing. And we have been made for intimacy with God. We were made that we might glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we want that. And men and women are are fascinated by God. And yet we cannot live with God. There's a, a pull and there's also a push away. We're traumatized in the presence of holiness. And of course, it's our sinfulness, isn't it? It's our sinfulness that makes it impossible for man to live with God. And modern men and women devote a great deal of time and energy trying to persuade themselves that they're good and there's no God anyway to judge them. And even if there was God, then he would be quite happy with them. But of course, all of this is living a lie. And so when God does manifest his reality in their lives in different ways. There's a a deep unease in the presence of holiness. And it's helpful to think of what's going on here. You know, here's a mountain on fire. Mount Sinai is ablaze. And what we have is the, the burning bush on a vast scale. There's a mountain now has become a burning bush. And there's a summons, come here. And there's also a warning, stay away. God tells the people to put limits around the mountain. It's as though uh, the mountain has become a crime scene and you have all that, you know, that yellow tape that you have uh, when there's a crime scene and and people are warned. Uh, Police, danger, crime scene, stay out. And uh, of course, the police don't want... uh, material to be contaminated and so you've got to stay away and anyone who touches the foot of the mountain is to be put to death no one is to touch the one who has been put to death it's as though the one who has been stoned because they touched the mountain has now in turn become contaminated and is a threat to anyone else And so now, if you like, to think about Mount Sinai, it's become a nuclear reactor. And the the warning signs are are, are radiation, danger, keep out. And the one who comes in defiance of the warning now becomes a danger in himself. He's radioactive. And of course, the lesson is is clear. With all of this, this drama and these instructions... Sin is a big deal. Sin is really serious. It's deadly. Sin is a contaminant. 
Sin pollutes it. It not only spoils your own life, but your life being spoiled will spoil the lives of others. And this is much worse. This is much more serious than radiation sickness. This is sickness unto death. And what we have here at Sinai is illustrated in some really terrifying, hair-raising incidents in the Old Testament. Uh, Some of them quite close to the giving of the law. Nadab and Abihu. Nadab and Abihu were Aaron's sons. And at this stage, uh, there's a priesthood has been established. And not only so, God has given very explicit rules as to how he is to be worshipped. And part of the worship of God in the tabernacle was that there was incense burned before the Lord. And Adab and Abihu, these young guys, they think, well, there's a bit of room for improvisation here. And so they, they go and they offer what was called unauthorized fire. And the Lord comes and strikes them down. And it's one of these, whoa, moments in the Bible. A reminder that we are just moments away from uh, being consumed in the presence of a holy God. And then move forward a little bit more to another really scary incident in the Old Testament. And it's concerning now another piece of uh, holy furniture. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, which is the, the, the box which would contain the stone tablets on which God would write the commandments. And in Eli's day, in Samuel and Eli's day, the ark was lost to the Philistines. And eventually David comes to, uh, to, to a position of power and the ark is recovered. And it's being taken on a, a cart back to Jerusalem. And uh, Uzzah reaches out to steady the ark when the oxen that is carrying the cart stumbles. He touches the ark and he's struck down by God. And interesting, we, we read that David is not pleased. David is angry that the Lord should have uh, executed such severe justice against Uzzah. But the point is this. Uzzah was a Kohathite. Uh, there, there were three clans of the tribe of Levi and they each had different jobs to do when the tabernacle uh, was being transported in the wilderness. And the Kohathites were responsible for looking after uh, the, the ark. And the Kohathites were told very clearly by God that no one was to uh, even look into the ark. No one uh, was to touch the ark. The ark was always to be transported by the use of poles. And Kohath overstepped himself, transgressed the boundaries that God had set, and God struck him down. And as we're processing this, we might begin to think, well, that was the God of the Old Testament, a little bit like Marcion this morning, and that's the God of the Old Testament. But hey, this is the God of the New Testament also. Fast forward to a scene on the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus has taken uh, over a boat, Uh, belonging to to Peter and the disciples, uh, in order to preach to the crowd. And after the crowd had been dismissed, Jesus tells 
uh, Peter to, to launch out again and to cast the nets into the deep. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, we, we, were, we were fishing all night. We were fishing at the best time for a good catch and there was nothing. Believe me, we got nothing. And then kind of under sufferance, Peter and the crew go out and they cast their nets into the deep. And remember, there's this enormous catch of fish that the net begins to bulge. Uh, it threatens to bring the boat down, so they have to call in the other boat that was at the, the, the lakeside. And then the, the second net is filled, and both boats are filled to capacity and threatened to go down under. Now, on the one hand, this is great. This is a, they have struck the jackpot. There's an enormous uh, amount of money thrashing away in these nets. You know, they take it to the market and they're, they're set up for, for months. And the striking thing is that Peter has got no thought of record landings or bank balances. He recognizes the divine power of the one who stands with him. And what does Peter say? He's traumatized. He says, depart from me, Lord. Because I am a sinful man. And poor Peter, we're always so hard on Peter. Peter who gets things wrong so often, he's spot on this time. He is in the presence of holiness and he's traumatized. Everything, everything that accompanies the arrival of God at Mount Sinai is underlining the trauma of holiness. Every part of the personality of the Israelites who are gathered at the foot of the mountain is impacted. All their senses are made to know that God in his awesomeness has come down. On the morning of the third day when God descends to Sinai, there is thunder that rings in the ears of the people. There's lightning that flashes across the sky. There's deep cloud. There's a loud trumpet blast. The mountain has become like a furnace, glowing red. Smoke drifts down from the mountain and fills the nostrils of the Israelites. Even their sense of balance is affected because the ground begins to tremble. And then the noise becomes louder and louder. Now, as, as we read that, we get a sense of this. This is, this is almost a, a hideous sensation an overwhelming sense of being disorientated and overwhelmed. It's the trauma of holiness. The noise becomes louder. God issues a second warning that the people must not break through the limits that he has set down. But despite the high voltage danger there is one man who is granted permission to come up into God's presence. <coughs> now the priests, whoever the priests are at this point, are permitted to come closer than the people. But Moses alone will enter the cloud with God. And Moses, we're told later, will be there with God 40 days and 40 nights as he receives the word of the law. Exodus 24, 18. Moses is the, the go-between, the intermediary between a holy God and a sinful people. Moses is the one who is, is chosen from amongst the people of God, 
who may come into God's presence and who will not be consumed. Now, this is, this is again where uh, this chapter becomes just a, an incredible theology lesson because this mountain which has been transformed into a burning bush, which has been, we say, likened to a, 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 a nuclear reactor in terms of its danger, is also a temple. It's become a place where God will meet with an intermediary. Think of the, the architecture, the layout of the tabernacle and, and later the, the temple. The tabernacle had a courtyard which was accessible by the people. People could come and they could, they could give their, their, their beasts over to the priests and he would slay them. And then there was the holy place into which the priests could come. Yes, but there was a, an inner sanctum also. There was the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place. And only the high priest could come. And only with the shedding of blood on the Day of Atonement. Because this is where God's presence was, was portrayed as being uh, most powerfully uh, present. So the mountain has become a temple. And the temple was a representative of Mount Sinai and both were to teach the people that the approach to God could only come through an intermediary. And once again, we see Moses is pointing to Jesus. He's pointing to Jesus uh, in his work as as a prophet, as one who will bring God's word to the people. Moses is told in verse 9, I, by God, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. God's servant, God's intermediary is being affirmed by the coming of God and by the voice of God. Now, where does that take us? Immediately, surely in our minds, we're, we're fast-forwarding to the New Testament and the Mount of Transfiguration, where God has come in a, in a cloud. And Jesus, with the representatives of the law and the prophets, is there in the cloud. And the voice comes from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. God affirms Jesus as the great prophet whose words we must attend to. So what's going on here in Exodus 19? Exodus 19 is is all about the the age-old question in Psalm 24. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who indeed... And the psalmist gives the answer, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his heart to an idol or swear by what is false. And immediately we realise, if we have any inkling into our own sinfulness, we realise that that's exactly what we don't have. We, we don't have uh, clean hands. We don't have a pure heart. And our minds are factories of idols. So really heaven is barred to us. There is no way up God's holy hill. So what is to be done? 
we have an intermediary. We have a new Moses. We have one who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who did love the Lord, the Father, with all his heart and soul and mind. And in Jesus, the way is opened up. He is the mediator who is so, 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 so much greater than Moses. So the New Testament is not proclaiming a different God. But it's telling us that that the way of access is so much greater. So much more glorious. And where better is that put than Hebrews 12? From verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire. To darkness, gloom and storm. To a trumpet blast. Or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What's that about? Well, Abel's blood was said to cry for vengeance from the ground. And the blood of Jesus speaks forgiveness, speaks peace, speaks of atonement. And through faith in Jesus, our high priest, we come into the presence of God and amazingly, we are not consumed. And we find our ultimate purpose in worship with all who are uh, in his presence, in, in our immediate presence, but also with that heavenly host that is portrayed in Hebrews 12, surrounding the throne. And what has happened because of Jesus? The Mount of Terror has become a Mount of Joy. We come into this festal assembly in the name of Jesus. God has spoken to us in Jesus. And therefore, that being the case, we close now thinking of how we need to heed his voice, because that's the point that the writer to the Hebrews makes. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a holy God, awesome in holiness. Our God is a consuming fire. Lord, we are endangered as sinners in your presence. Our sin means that we are combustible. And yet we bless you, Lord, that you have made a way for us 
come into your presence. Jesus is the one who can ascend your holy hill and he brings us with us, with him. He is the great pioneer. We thank you for this foretaste, uh, even this evening of worship that will endure eternally because Jesus has kept the covenant so that we who are covenant breakers might be made right before you and enjoy your presence as we give you glory. Lord, we pray that something of your awesomeness will induce in us today and in the coming days as we go into the week the fear of the Lord, that we might walk humbly before you, that we might not be presumptuous, but that we might seek to honour you in all we think and say and do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.